Hello and welcome to the So What podcast, in which political economic analyst J.P. Lantman discusses the issues uppermost in the minds of South Africans. You can find a written version of this content on J.P.'s website, jplantman.co.za. I am Ruda Lantman and I am your host. These first few recordings were done at our dining room table, but we will soon be moving into a studio. Hello, and a very warm welcome, as always, to this recording, which accompanies JP's latest research note. It's dated the 27th of June, 2023, and the title is Integrating Economics and Foreign Policy. JP, you quote a biographer who wrote a biography of Zbigny Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. He said, the ignorance of geopolitical minds about economics is matched only by the economics profession's ignorance about foreign policy. And then you say that's a very apt description of the current debate in South Africa. What do you mean? Well, what the biographer said was that uh, Brzezinski and other foreign affairs uh, luminaries like uh, Henry Kissinger and Madeleine Albrecht, the names he used, were all people that were not really very much interested in economics. They were interested in geopolitical maneuvers. Um, but economics are extremely important in any country. Uh, and if you if you're the world's number one economy like America, you can probably afford not to worry too much about economics. When you're a smaller country like South Africa, you actually have to. And uh, what struck me about that uh, remark by the biographer is simply that in the debate that we currently have in South Africa about our foreign policy, the relationship with the U.S., the relationship with Russia, and so on, uh, there is a, almost a, a Chinese wall, dare I say, between economics and uh, diplomat- uh, diplomacy or foreign policy. And it is as if the two are totally disconnected and not uh, talking to each other and not the one reinforcing the other. And you believe <coughs> they should be integrated? Absolutely. Uh, it should absolutely be integrated. And it is just noticeable that even the US now is moving to a much more integrated economic and foreign policy approach. So I think we also have to do that. And now the question then arises, well, how do you integrate them? What in economics is important in foreign relations and the other way around? Now, thankfully, the Minister of Finance in Okwadangwana answered this question in Parliament. And he said there are four transmission channels, that's what he called them, uh, determining the influence of foreign policy on our domestic economy. And those those four uh, transmission channels or four areas uh, is basically the currency, uh, trade and supply chains, uh, investment and liquidity. And what I do in that is to take each of these four areas or each of these four transmission channels and we look at to what extent foreign policy decisions affect the local economy via that transmission channel. Now, the first one, if I can just plunge into it, is the the currency. And uh, we saw it immediately when the Lady R uh, fracas based in the open and became a, a hot topic. What happened to the currency? What happened to the ramp? Well, it depreciated immediately. It is recovered, then recovered a little bit, but it is still very, very weak. What was the impact of that depreciating currency? Well, the Reserve Bank increased interest rates by 50 basis points, while everybody up till that point expected the bank to increase by 25 basis points. 
Now, you can say 25 basis points, a quarter of a percent is not a lot, but if you think that you levy that uh, interest rate charge across the entire economy, individuals, households, businesses, government itself, and so on, it adds up to a huge amount of money. So, the transmission channel worked very uh, immediately. The currency depreciated when there was a foreign policy dispute, and South Africans are paying the price through high interest rates. Simple. So uh, uh, it was better. It would have been better for us to have a foreign policy stance that would not have precipitated that kind of currency depreciation. The second one is uh, trade and supply chain. This is where the whole AGOA thing, uh, African Growth and Opportunity Act where that debate comes in. But of course, it's about much more than just a goa. Uh, as the minister pointed out in parliament, it's not just trade, which is a goa, it's also supply chain. We cannot by any stretch of the imagination produce uh, everything that we need in a country ourselves. It's not possible. We're using cell phones, which were imported. We're using software, which are imported. We're using oil for run our motor cars, which are imported and so on. So it's about much more than just a goa. It's also, it's also trade. And what we did was to look at the trade, comparing the trade of two blocks. The one is four main Western countries. And those countries are the US, Germany, Japan, and the United Kingdom. They are our main trading partners. And Japan is an interesting case because it's not physically in the West or geographically in the West, no, not but it's it's part of the G7 and part of that whole economic block. Absolutely. Yeah, you're quite right. It's in, located in the East, but it's part of the West. One of the things one must remember. And uh, it is very clear that uh, we export much more to the four Western countries than what we export to the BRICS. So in terms of bringing money into the country by selling our goods, our main clients are sitting in the West, not in, not in BRICS. In fact, the relationship is about uh, two times. We export twice as much to the four Western countries than what we export to the four BRICS countries. If you move to the import side or the supply side, you find much the same thing. We import much more from the BRICS countries uh, than what we import from the four Western countries. And 70% of the BRICS imports really come from China. I must just put that as a subnote. So it's not so much Russia, Brazil, even India. China is the main provider of imports into South Africa. But here is the point. We run a trade surplus with the four Western countries. We run a huge trade deficit with the BRICS countries, which basically means a deficit with China. Now, if you're a capital-scarce country like South Africa, it is better to have a surplus than a deficit. Deficit has to be paid for. So we run a deficit with BRICS and we run a surplus with the, with the West. You can clearly see that the surplus with the West is helping to pay for the deficit with the BRICS countries. And again, uh, if that is where your clients are, if that is where the people are who buy your goods, it is appropriate, I think, to, to treat them with respect and uh, and uh, and maintain good relationships. I just want to point out to the listeners that those of you who are interested in the hard data, do go to the written note. Uh, there are very clear figures 
which illustrate everything that JB's just said. Yes, indeed, and that that may be very useful. We uh, we yeah, we're just talking conceptually. And uh, while we're on it, can I uh, recognise the contribution that was made by Peter Rue in the research for this note? He's the one who uh, worked on the numbers and compiled the numbers. So uh, there are four transmission channels, so four areas of impact. There's the currency. We talked about that. There is a trade and supply chain. We talked about that. Just before we move off trade and supply chain, it is quite clear if you look at the fact that we export about twice as much to Europe or to those four countries rather than what we export to BRICS. It is quite clear that it is much easier for South African exporters to get their products into those countries than to get their products into the BRICS countries. So there's clearly a whole area of work that needs to be done. And one would like to see the Department of Foreign Affairs, instead of embarrassing us internationally, rather help our exporters to get their exports into countries like China and, and, and the other BRICS countries. The third transmission channel is investment. And here we're talking about foreign direct investment. And again, the numbers which are in the written piece are simply overwhelming. We get three times as much investment from the four Western countries that we uh, refer to than what we get from BRICS. And and that would make sense. Uh, the BRICS countries, uh, even China, uh, are developing countries and they would have less capital available. China may be the outlier. While the the developed countries, the four countries that we're looking at, are mature economies and they have more capital that they can disperse. So we get. They look for investment opportunities outside of their own borders. They do. Mm. They do. And increasingly, uh, Indian and Chinese companies are also doing it, but there are many more uh, European countries or companies from those four countries investing in South Africa than, than they are from the BRICS countries. But uh, the bottom line of this paragraph for purposes of the audio is three times more. We get three times more investment from those four Western countries than what we get from the four BRIC countries. And the last one is liquidity. And liquidity is an interesting one because liquidity is a little bit like your bank uh, your bank account. Sometimes you are overdrawn because you have to pay medical expenses or you buy furniture or you buy a car or whatever, and you need credit. You need a bank overdraft. Now, the same goes for a country. When a country runs a current account deficit, it needs to finance that deficit in one way or another. You need you need a positive inflow on your capital account to pay for a deficit on the trade account. Now, South Africa, generally speaking, is a current account deficit country. Uh, we're not there every year, and we are now in COVID and so on times where we were not a deficit country. But generally speaking, we are. We're a capital scarce country. And when you are, when you need that overdraft, when you don't have capital to finance your needs, that's when you need liquidity. Now, where does the liquidity come from? It comes from essentially international private sector companies like pension funds, like insurance companies, like banks, who advance money to in to countries. They, they make port, what is called portfolio investments, or they can also make direct loans, in the case of a bank, into South Africa. That is how money comes in, and you use that money to finance your deficit. 
Now, these are not governments providing the money. I think that's very important to say. It's private companies that provide the money. And funds, pension funds. And pension funds. Yeah, that's what I mean by private. Pension funds, insurance companies, banks, and so on. Rich individuals, uh, family offices, uh, that sort of thing. Now, these people operate much more on optics. Uh, They obviously do their fundamental research, but optics affect them. And if you do silly things that make them risk-averse, that is the term, and they become risk-averse, then they don't supply you with the money. And you don't have liquidity. Now, what happens if you don't have liquidity? Well, you absolutely slow down the functioning of the economy. That is what happened in South Africa after 1985 or in 1985 when P.W. Bota made his famous or infamous Rubicon speech. Just before he made the speech, Citibank said they're no longer going to supply South Africa with liquidity. They stopped our credit lines and we were forced into a dead standstill. Other banks, of course, other institutions followed Citibank. And from 1985 to 1993, basically a period of eight years, we uh, we struggled with liquidity. And you see it in our economic growth numbers. Growth simply slumped. Because what normally happens when you don't have the capital available to finance a deficit, it's like a household as well, you're forced to go into a surplus. You're forced to lower your expenditure. So that, so that you generate a surplus. Now, in economic terms, the way you do that is you force down GDP growth, you force, you make the economy smaller, literally, so that it needs less capital, and then you are in a position where you're not dependent on foreign capital. We were there for eight years, uh, 85 to 93. It's not a comfortable place to be. And what we must understand, it's not just about foreign direct investment, which is the third transmission channel. It is also about this fourth transmission channel, which is liquidity or think of it as a bank overdraft. So these are the four areas where the Minister of Finance uh, said there are clear avenues or, as he called it, channels through which the economy gets affected. And I find it a very useful frame through which to look at our foreign policy. But... If one listens to that, it just really sounds as if our uh, Department of Foreign Affairs is, it is almost not understandable what they do. But then you put the other side on the, on the piece of paper, and that is geopolitics. And yes. you say, no, we have to also look at South Africa's position in the world. And there is a rationality to their actions. No, absolutely. That is what uh, what Brzezinski's biographer said. He said the ignorance of geopolitical minds about economics is matched only by the economics profession's ignorance of foreign policy. And I think it's a beautiful summary because if you now look at South Africa's foreign policy stance, what is it? Well, the first point to factor in is that South Africa accepts that the world is busy breaking up into three blocks. There is the Western Bloc, which is led by the U.S., and one can basically say the G7 countries, plus some smaller players like Australia, New Zealand, and so on. And it's not the West, because it includes, as you've pointed out, Japan. It includes Australia, which sits in the the East. Um, That's the G7 Bloc. The second Bloc that's forming in the world is China, and the countries very dependent on China, very much in the influence sphere of China. Now, the China bloc is not as cohesive and as strong at this stage as the G7, but it's forming. There's no question about it. And the third bloc is what is loosely referred to as the global south. Now, who's the global south? 
Well, it includes South America, uh, the continent of South America. It includes uh, Africa. It includes the Middle East. It includes India and even China. So you can see that, that that is by far the biggest block in the world. It's also the least uh, cohesive. Now, South Africa is part of the global South. We are there by way of, of tradition. Uh, we follow the, the principles of the Bandung, Con Bandung Conference of 1955, the non-alignment uh, conference that was held there. And, and we basically say the world cannot be unipolar. South Africa is very much against a, a unipolar world. And we would like to see a multipolar world where everybody is treated with, with respect and dignity. Um, and this, this global South position that South Africa have will not be abandoned. And it will not move over into the G7 bloc simply because the G7 bloc is South Africa's most important economic partners, more important than the BRICS partners. So economically, we belong with the G7. Politically, we belong with the global South. We want to stay clear of China. I think that is very clear. South Africa is one of the few countries in Africa where there are no Belt and Road Initiative projects. Uh, the same logic. Uh, if you're against uh, a unipolar American world, you're also against the unipolar Chinese world. So we very much see ourselves as part of the global south. And, and that position, South Africa will not give up. So now the trick is to integrate these two things. Uh, economically, you belong with the, G, with the G7. Politically, you are part of the global south. And then you want to maintain good relations with China because they're a huge export market, but they're also a huge supplier of goods in your supply chain. So we want to be friends with, with everybody, which is a perfectly legitimate and laudable stance. But then your foreign policy must reflect the fact that you want to be more or less friends with everybody. And you say it is possible because Brazil and India have think, given us <clears throat> examples. Yes, that's the important learning point. What I've, what I've done in the note is to compare South Africa's behavior with uh, Brazil and India. Why Brazil and India? They're both part of the global South, like us. They're, bo they're both democracies, just like we are. They're both against the unipolar world, just like we are. But they behaved very differently in the UN Security Council in votes and resolutions on the Ukraine war. They took a very different stance from what we did. We did not display the nuance of, uh, of, of Brazil and, and India. India, by the way, played the game very cleverly, and they have a very clear idea of what is their national interest. Why do I say that? Well, they refused to impose sanctions against Russia, and in fact, they went and they bought oil from Russia. But they bought it at a huge discount. The, when the market price was running at about $80 a, a barrel, they were buying for 45 Now, that's a lovely discount to get for your country. More than that, they paid for it in rupees. To such an extent that uh, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, had to travel to the Delhi, and he admitted, you can see the video on YouTube, he admitted that the rupees that the Russians now own, which sit in the Indian banking system, are of no use to the Russians. You know, what do you do with a rupee? Well, you can buy some Indian goods and then the surplus. So the Indians have got a very clear idea of what is in their own interest, and they pursued it didn't impose sanctions, bought the oil, paid for it in rupees in terms of their own national interest. Now, I don't detect that strong push for South Africa's national interest in our foreign policy. If you compare our position to Brazil, Lula from Brazil is very clear. 
He condemned the Russian invasion, but he also condemned the West and NATO specifically for, uh, for, for stoking the war and by implication for supporting Ukraine. And this was uh, a while ago already. His foreign affairs advisor recently said, uh, had a lovely description, he said, you cannot judge the Ukraine war by the last one and a half years. It is a product of the Cold War. Ukraine is a victim of the Cold War. Now, I haven't heard the South African government or Durko saying Ukraine is a victim here. We've bought into the binary position. It's either NATO and the US or Russia. My view from the beginning is when, what about the 43 million people who live in Ukraine? What about the 43 million Ukrainians? Do they not count? Are they of no relevance? It's not a binary story. It is much more complicated than just binary. Now, the Brazilians clearly understand that and say it in public. We, we haven't said it in public. So if you compare our behavior to the behavior of India and to the behavior of Brazil, our diplomatic behavior that is, then clearly we're not uh, as non-aligned as they are and not as firm in our own independent thinking and in our own independent search for what is in our national interest, like the Indian Sudan. It looks like people are thinking in terms of us and them. Yes, yes. And that's not, that's not good enough in a tripolar world where you want to have relationships with everybody. You cannot afford the luxury of us and them. That's lazy thinking, as it is in normal life. Have we seen uh, knock-on effects, uh, for yes, example, I've... in the relationship with the G7? Yes, we have seen knock-on effects. This year, for the first time since the time Thabo Mbeki was president, we're talking over 20 years here in total, uh, South Africa was not invited to the G7, annual G7 summit. Even uh, President Zuma went to all the G7 summits. President Ramaphosa went. This year, the invitation did not arrive. Now, you can say that is just coincidence. You can say Japan who was the host this year, preferred to uh, have the chairman of the African Union there. Uh, and I'm not persuaded at all, because the African Union has been around for a long time. And uh, other host countries did not invite the chairman only. But while we're on the point, inviting the chairman of the African Union is actually, I think, not in Africa's best interest. What happens when you go to these summits regularly? Well, you develop a relationship with the other leaders. You can build trust. They can understand where you come from. You can continuously clarify misunderstandings. You become part of a network. You become part of a network. If you have a rotating chairman, every year there's a new AE, uh, AU chairman, and you, if you have a rotating chairman now coming in and disappearing and coming in and disappearing, how do you build a network from which Africa as a continent can benefit? So I, I, uh, I will never know. We will never know whether there's a link between our foreign policy missteps and, and the non-invitation to the G7. But I think it is something to take note of. And I think it is uh, we bluff ourselves. If we say, oh, it's only because Japan wanted to invite the whole African Union and not just a particular African country. But on the other hand, you do say that you, the United States may be overplaying its hand. Absolutely. Look, this, this whole note is about balance. It's about integrating uh, ostensibly opposing things. It's about doing what is right, but in a way which, which takes you forward. 
Now, uh, what we've seen in the in the U.S. in the way that they handled the Lady R story, in the way that they sanctioned a, a private uh, flight school in Utsuring, I mean Utsuring of all places. You know, I come from that part of the world. It is really deep rural. And to now say that that flight school uh, is a potential threat to the security of the United States is simply just rubbish. I'm sorry, but it's just rubbish. Now, the, the problem with this kind of overplaying your hand, it, it looks very arrogant. It looks very bossy. And bossiness and arrogance can have a political side effect. And the political side effect is us and them, exactly what you referred to earlier. And plays into the hand plays into the hands of the people who want to mobilize. In 1977, a year after the Soweto riots, South Africa was also in, a, in, in dire straits. And what did John Foster do, the then Prime Minister? He led the National Party to its biggest election victory in the nearly five decades that it ruled the country. How did he achieve that? Well, he just ran against Jimmy Carter. That's all. You know, the, the canvassers went up the street and said, who do you vote for, John Foster or Jimmy Carter? And that's it. He wiped out the opposition. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened in uh, in Hungary more recently with the uh, Prime Minister there, Viktor Orban. He ran against John Soros, who happened to be a Hungarian-born citizen, but is now in the U.S. And he, he just ran against, uh, against George Soros. Uh, Mugabe ran against Tony Blair in several elections. So be careful for igniting us and them dynamic in politics. It may really backfire against the things that you want to advance. In summary, so what? Well, I think the summary comes out uh, very clearly. We are economically much more integrated with the West than what we are with BRICS. As the world shifts towards the BRICS, we will obviously also become more integrated with, with the BRICS. And we don't, we simply don't want to choose. We want to be part of both. But at the moment, we are much more part of the West than of BRICS. Economically. Economically. So economically, that's where we sit. Our foreign policy must reflect that. And if you take our foreign policy and you compare it with other countries from the global south, uh, then you can see that, that we've made a couple of missteps that we, we could have avoided. Just compare ourselves to India and compare ourselves to Brazil, those two other countries from the global south. As the world is breaking up into three blocks, uh, it, is, it is our duty, it is in our national interest, in my view, to maintain good relationships with all three blocks. We're not in favor of a unipolar world. We're in favor of a multipolar world, but then you must maintain relations with the multipolar world. You cannot say, I will not deal with this one or I'll deal with that one. I think uh, we also one of the so what's for me is that South Africa needs to have a m- much, much clearer idea of its own identity, where it stands, what it wants to say, and also its own national interest. And for me, the example remains India. You buy oil at a huge discount and you pay for it in your own currency. I mean, you know, it hardly can get better than that. But that's because the Indians pushed for it. They they realized the Russians were in a weak position and they said, yes, we'll buy your oil, but at a discount then you take our currency. And and the Russians uh, had to do that. So we can we can do, with, uh, I really don't care what happens with Russia, but I do care about South Africa's national interest. And we must have a very clear idea what it is and then push for it aggressively uh, in, all the, in all the places where we interact. Essentially, it's about integrating own interest and international interest, own interest 
with our, with our partner's interest, own identity of where you stand in the world. That is really what it comes down to. Thank you very much for a very clear and fresh look at the whole thing. And I think a, a more holistic view of the current international relations problem mm. that we have. No, yeah. we must take our cue from the Brzezinski biographer. It is not just about geopolitics and it's not just about economics. It's and about it cannot both. be about cannot either be. one. It, it must be. be about both. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the So What podcast. If you enjoy this content, please don't forget to leave a review and a rating and please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, tell your friends. Remember, you can find a written version of all JP's content at jplandman.co.za.